In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So as we said in the previous lessons, we decided to spend a little bit of time on some of the major contentions and claims that are often made, unfortunately, by using science to attack belief in God and religion by those who want to take science beyond its realm, beyond its field, and to use it almost as a system of belief and ideology. So one of the claims that we already explored is the one that says that the universe may have come out of nothing, may have been created out of nothing. And we did that by reading different passages from a book by Lawrence Krauss called The Universe from Nothing. The second claim that we explored is the one that has to do with the beginning of life. The beginning of life is considered to be one of the most problematic areas in science today. So, even those who want to reject any supernatural means, any means beyond materialism, physicalism, uh, they find themselves stuck. This is, I think today, there's a, I think those who know a little bit of science are going to give often the impression, those who may know a little bit of science sometimes are going to give the impression that the origin of life question is not more special or problematic than any of the other problems in science. But anyone who has really studied the question of the origin of life, people who have studied in-depth biology, microbiology and origin of life questions, they all know that these are extremely difficult, contentious, problematic issues in science today. So, in our last gathering, we looked to a certain extent on the at this question from different angles. We basically said that the biggest theory today is called the RNA world theory. So, I thought we would do a quick recap of what we said, and then we try to push it just a little bit further, but this time, because last time when we spoke, there seemed to be a lot of interest, especially after the, the actual talk, there was a lot of interest in, in this topic, a lot more than I thought there would be. So I thought I would add a little bit more detail, and I will give a little bit more references so that if anyone wants to really explore this, they know where to look. And I'm going to refer to two big books about this and a few names that I'll mention quickly so that if anyone wants to study this topic in more depth, they know where to start. So we said that, generally speaking, today, let's go back to as far back as we can in terms of scientific thought and humanity. 
human beings did not really have a problem with the idea that life can come out of non-life, of inanimate matter. So life can come out of dead matter. That used to be a belief that was commonly held by a lot of people who were considered thinkers, scientists, educated people for many, many centuries. And this was called different things, vitalism or spontaneous generation or, or, or. And this idea was basically like you could see it even in the writings of Aristotle and others. They would say that if you have decaying matter, so if something used to be alive and now it's dead, it's, uh, or it, it's something that came out of a living being, so either a living being that has died or something that has come out of a, a living being, it has something of a life force in it that is going to be enough for it to generate life on its own. And that's how you see the development of mold and maggots and flies and mice, even alligators. They say that crocodiles or alligators, they come out of dead logs at the bottom of the lake or the uh, stagnant water. They used to believe that. This is where they come from. So they didn't have an issue with the idea that dead matter or dying matter, dead or dying matter, can produce, can generate living matter. That's until science, and I'm talking more in the Western world, okay? We're not going to talk about the Islamic world. That was ahead of them centuries. In the Western world, at some point, this idea become, became very problematic when they started understanding scientific thought. And when, you know, people like uh, von Leeuwenhoek, who, who came up with the microscope, and they started looking at very small entities like a cell, they started questioning or criticizing the idea that something alive can come out of something dead. So this started around the 1600s, and finally this was sealed as a topic by Louis Pasteur in the 1800s. So it took about 150 to 200 years of serious critique all the way to the time when Pasteur sealed the deal he put the final nail in the coffin, as they say, or in his own words, he says, this is the blow that is going to, from which the idea of spontaneous generation will never recover. Like, I'm sealing the deal, that's it. So this is around 1860, 1861. So this seems very logical. The idea that you cannot have something alive coming out of something dead. Right? It seems very logical. And today, the majority of educated people and people who understand science, if you tell them spontaneous generation, they'll laugh at you. And they'll say, absolutely not, it doesn't make sense, it used to be an old myth that people used to believe in. But what happened? At about the same time, Darwin was writing the idea, and I'm going to read the quote, the idea that life could have emerged from non-life. So the law that was being put in place by Pasteur, the law of biogenesis, or the law that says that life can only come out of life, as it was being put forward as a law, as a scientific law, at the same time it was being refuted by someone else, by Darwin at that time, who was pushing the idea now, going back to, people don't like it when you say it this way, but 
going back to spontaneous generation, or the idea that it is possible for living matter to come out of non-living matter. Okay, so abiogenesis. You have to put an a before it, it means without or not. So biogenesis means uh, the birth of living out of living, biogenesis. Abiogenesis, so now you have birth of living from non-living. So Darwin, I have a quote here in 1871, he was writing, a, an, a, he actually wrote about that before, but he, he regretted using the term creation, I don't have that quote, but in this one he was writing in a, in a letter to one of his friends, he was saying, but if and what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes, at the present day such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before the living creatures were formed. So he was already starting to think about this idea that somewhere, if there was something like a pond, water, and it was warm enough so that life can come out of it, and all the ingredients required for life were there, including lightning, so electricity, he says electricity, and heat, uh, and light, all of that together is going to produce something that will be transformed, and with time, if it goes undergoes complex changes, it will become life. Okay, so that's the beginning of the idea. So although they said spontaneous generation is impossible, they are saying that something like this could generate life on its own. So this is around 1870, as we said. The next real movement progress forward is around the 1920s. So this is when uh, Oparin, he wrote a book about the, uh, I think I have the name here, The Origin of Life, 1924. He wrote a book in which he started pushing that idea and adding a lot more. He explained the steps in five or six steps, how we can go from, but this is all in theory, how we may be able to go from a hot area of the ocean all the way to something living coming out of it. Okay? And this is what he referred to as the primeval soup that was later called the primordial soup. Okay, so primeval, so that is, the soup is basically the ocean that is filled with all the ingredients required for life. Um, so he, he talked about the spontaneous generation of life uh, that had been attacked by Louis Pasteur did in fact occur, but only once. So this idea is going to remain, and we talked about that, why it had to happen only once. Now it is impossible because the conditions are different. So he's repeating the same idea that Darwin put forward. He's saying, he's saying that today we would not be able to replicate those conditions because we had to have something very special, the right temperature and the right amount of gas in the atmosphere and, 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 which is not the case today. So let's, uh, this is early Earth. So early Earth or very young Earth, we did not have the same amount of oxygen that we have today. In fact, there was almost none. So if you recreate the conditions at that time, none of us could exist. But that's what would be required for that first life to come out. Okay, and so that, that's why he was of the same opinion again. 
So again, we're saying 1920. This is, we're still at the level of the theory. This is someone putting forward a theory. Fast forward to the 1950s, when two scientists working together, in fact, one of them was a graduate st a student and the other one was, was his prof, was his supervisor, uh, Stanley Miller and Yuri. So that became, the, they worked on experiments, so that became known as the Stanley-Yuri experiment. Basically, they tried to recreate the conditions that they thought may, might have been the ones on early Earth to see if they could get, if they put some ingredients in there. So if they added electricity and they added some gases and they made the water reach a certain temperature and it evaporates and it comes back and it evaporates and condensates and comes back and there's an injection of that gas and electricity or lightning in there with those gases, are they able to generate anything out of it or not? And they were able to generate some things out of that some of the uh, amino acids at that time. So that became the first real proof for them that something could be generated this way. So now it's just a matter of manipulating in the right way, adding the right ingredients, waiting long enough, and it's going to work, right? So that now we're in the 1950s. And this became a milestone. From that point on, Everybody was now convinced that it is a possibility. So all we need to do is just to keep working at it. So they were not claiming that this is exactly how life began. No one can do that. What they're trying to do is to guess how life may have begun. What may have been required. If you go back in time, how can you explain the, what you see today, what you observe today, and you roll it back in time? How old is Earth? What would have have it looked like, and so on and so forth. And then from there, this is where we go into what we explained last week. So I'm not going to repeat all of that, but basically the idea that you cannot right away jump into the complexity of a cell. And what they need is something that explains how we got the first cell, the first living animal cell or living cell, let's not even go animal, the first living cell. So what they did is to go into smaller and smaller components. The problem is when they start digging, so let's say when they first really understood what is inside the nucleus of a cell, and it's way too complex already, they have to keep digging to something a lot more simple in there to be able to explain the beginnings of those cells. So we go down to what we called functional proteins that can become eventually RNA or DNA or, or, okay? So, and I'm not going to repeat all of that. From all of that today, as we said, there are different, there's maybe a dozen good theories about how all of that would have come together. And we said about basically the majority and the most popular of those theories is the one that says that the one thing that may have explained how life begun is RNA. And today we're going to read a couple of passages from about that too. One of the biggest issues, and I didn't want to go into the details as I said before, one of the biggest issues they have, we were saying that in order to have DNA, one of the problems that you have with DNA is that to have DNA, you have to have active or functional proteins. 
to have to generate a functional protein, you need DNA. So today, when they look at how it works, you have the exact problem of the chicken and the egg. Which one came first? To explain how DNA came to be, you need functional proteins, but what creates those functional proteins and puts them together and can use them is DNA. In certain cases, today when they study this, they see that there is an intermediary between the DNA and the functional protein, and that is the RNA. The RNA could then become the one thing that explains how life first emerged. If we can explain that, then it could go either or, either way, it, it may be explainable. Okay, so that's one more reason why they went to the RNA. And I, I mentioned a couple more last week. I'm not going to repeat them. So what we said, what we talked about last week, but it was kind of a high-level overview. So today I'm going to give you a little bit more references about this by reading from two books. What we said is when they put the probabilities together, the probability that if you put all the ingredients together, and you wait long enough, the probability that you get a functional protein when all those ingredients are together in the same place, that they combine in the right way and produce that first functional protein you need, are 1 in 10 to the power of 164. And we said that's a lot more than the number of particles in the universe, elementary particles, not particles, elementary particles in the universe, a lot more than the number of seconds we've had, a lot more than the number of all events that have happened since the beginning of time until now, multiple, multiple times. And inshallah, if I don't forget, maybe after today's uh, lecture, there's a, I found earlier today, I was looking at this, and there's a very nice animated YouTube clip that explains how a, if you put one elementary particle on the back of an amoeba, which is one of the simplest creatures that exist, a unicellular being, and if it were to travel the entire universe at a very slow pace from one end of the universe to the other, how many times it would have to go back and forth carrying one elementary particle on its back on every trip, how many times it would have to go back and forth before you get that one functional protein together. There's an animated video on that, that might be nice to watch. Anyways, so as we said, the probability was very, very low. So I thought, first of all, I wanted to read some passages from a book called The Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. So The Signature in the Cell, uh, it's, a, it's a big book and I'm obviously not going to go through a lot of it. There are really seven pages in that book that I thought would be interesting if you wanted to look at them from page 170 to one page to page 177. And in there you get a very good summary of the scientists and the experiments that they did to get to that number. And that's what I'm trying to give you. So how did we go to 1 in 10 to the power of 164? So you get a little bit of a summary there. They talk about the scientists who initially worked on this. Um, let's see if they're mentioned. Yeah, so Robert Sauer, 
was the guy who had initially worked on it, and then the guy who came up with this number is Douglas Axe. And he's well known, he has a number of books, you can look him up. Um, so here, he, Stephen Meyer is talking about how he got to know these people and the experiments that they are working on. So I'm not going to read all of this, but I thought I'd read a couple of passages here. So initially they were saying that Douglas Axe continued the work of previous scientists who already had huge issues. The more they did calculations, the more the probability got high. So Douglas Axe came and did all these calculations to a much with much more rigor. He used comp uh, computational power, he used computers, he did a lot more calculations, he added more rigor to the calculations, and that's how he got to the, the, to the numbers that he got to, which is 1 in 10 to the power of 164. Um, so here, for instance, one passage he says, in a conversation with me, Axe has compared the odds of producing a functional protein sequence of modest length, 150 amino acids. So this is very, very average protein, a size of a protein. At random, to produce that at random, is similar to the odds of finding a single marked atom out of all the atoms in our galaxy via a blind and undirected search. Okay, he's saying it's about that. And then the author adds, believe it or not, the odds of finding the marked atom in our galaxy are markedly better, about a billion times better, than those of finding a functional protein among all the sequences of corresponding length. Okay? And so here they, they go into some of the numbers. Let me read uh, a couple of... Because these are important passages. So in one of them, he says, in June 2017, uh, Axe had a chance to present his findings. So this is the number that we're talking about, the 1 in 10 to the power 164. Had a chance to present his findings at a symposium commemorating the publication of the proceedings from the original Wistar Symposium 40 years earlier. The Wistar Symposium is where they asked that big question. What are the chances that life could have come together based purely on science. So this is by scientists from all over the world, the best minds working on this. That's the question at that symposium. So in attendance at this symposium in Boston was retired MIT engineer, engineering professor Murray Eden with a still incisive mind at the age of 87. Eden had been one of the original conv conveners of the Western uh, Wistar Conference and was the one who had most forcefully explained the combinatorial problem, so the problems that they combine one problem over the other, that gets you these gigantic numbers. He was one of the first to explain the combinatorial problem facing neo-Darwinism. Forty years later, Axe's experimental work had now confirmed Eden's initial intuition. The odds are prohibitively stacked against a random process producing functional proteins. Functional proteins are exceedingly rare among all possible combinations of amino acids. We said amino acids are like the bricks that you have to put together to create the proteins. Axe's improved estimate of how rare functional proteins are within sequence space has now made it possible to calculate the probability that a 150 amino acid compound, which is not a really big protein, uh, assembled by random interactions in a prebiotic soup, this is another name for it, to talk about those very warm 
uh, puddles of water as, or ponds as, as uh, Darwin referred to them would be a functional protein. This calculation can be made by multiplying the three independent probabilities uh, one by the other, and I'm going to skip here until he says, making the calculation uh, gives a dramatic answer. The odds of getting even one functional protein of modest length, 150 amino acids by chance from a prebiotic soup, is no better than one chance in 10 to the power of 164. So if you want the, a reference that explains all of this, this is one of the books that talks about it. Now I'm going to read this uh, little passage here and I'm going to go to another book and then I'm going to come back to the end of this. So he says, now consider that there are only 10 to the power of 80 protons, neutrons and electrons in the observable universe. Thus, if the odds of finding a functional protein by chance on the first attempt had been 1 in 10 to the 80, we could have said that it's like finding a marked particle among all the particles in the universe. So if someone told you, what are the chances? So you take all the particles in the universe, not the atoms, all the electrons, protons, and neutrons that form the atom. You take all of those, and you take one of them, and you mark it. You put a red dot on it. And you say, now close your eyes, and shoot randomly, and hit the one that has the red on it. That would be a 1 in 10 to the power of 80 chances. Okay? That's how unlikely it is. And you guys laugh before That's I even finish. <laughs> okay? So this would be 10, 1 in 10 to the power of 80. We could have said that it's like finding a marked particle among all the particles in the universe, a much larger haystack. Unfortunately, the problem is much worse than that. With odds standing at one chance in 10 to the power of 164 of finding a functional protein among the possible 150 amino acid compounds, the probability is 84 orders of magnitude or power of 10 smaller than the probability of finding the marked particle in the whole universe. Another way to say this is that the probability of finding a functional protein by chance alone is a trillion, 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 trillion times smaller than the odds of finding a single specific particle among all particles in the universe. Okay? So this is just to confirm and summarize everything we said until now. Okay? I'm going to come back to the end of uh, a couple of paragraphs I wanted to finish with from this book, but I want to jump to another book. So this is one book to keep in mind if you want all of this in one place, The Signature and the Cell by Stephen Meyer is a good book to read. I'm reading... I, as I told you, all of this is seven pages from the book where he talks about all of this, but it's a pretty big book. The other book that I wanted to read from is a book by an author by the name of Eugene Koonin. So Eugene Koonin is a PhD in biology with a specialty or expertise in evolution and computational biology and microbiology. He has a number of very interesting writings He's very multidisciplinary. He combines things from cosmology, geology, biology, and math, and probability, and a lot of fields. So very interesting to read. One of his writings, I find this one absolutely fascinating, is a book. Uh, the name of the book, I believe, is The Logic of Chance. 
Yes, the logic of chance, the nature and origin of biological evolution in, from 2012. The book entirely is very interesting. It's a 500-page book. Very, very interesting. The part that is relevant for us today is chapter 12, in which he talks specifically about the beginning of life, and he presents his own theory of how that could have been. So let me just go to some of the passages. So this is chapter 12. Hopefully I can go quickly here. So I didn't want to read too much, but there are passages I think that are very, very important from this chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, so just to validate some of the things that we've said until now. So this guy, again, to be very clear for all of us, this guy is an atheist. He's a, he's a staunch atheist. He absolutely does not believe in God. He, he talks about that elsewhere here and elsewhere. He really believes in the anthropic principle. So basically, he will come out one way or another. He will always explain everything by scientific, materialistic, physicalism, and materialistic means, okay? So that part is not an issue. This is not someone trying to disprove any of this, like Stephen Meyer believes in intelligent design. Okay, so someone may say, you know, he's twisting and turning and making the arguments say something different. This guy is not, okay? And let's see what he says based on everything that we've said. Maybe someone can come and say, I'm twisting things around. I'm not saying things as they really are. I'm providing a very biased perspective. Let's see what this guy says. <clears throat> so right uh, from the beginning of chapter 12, which is called The Origin of Life, he says, all these models seem to be of dubious value unless we develop some kind of explanation for the origin. So he talked about how in previous chapters he was saying how evolution could work. And he's saying all of that is good and nice. All these models seem to be of dubious, so they're doubtful, of dubious value unless we develop some kind of uh, to develop some kind of explanation for the origin of fundamental processes of information transmission. If we can't explain that, then all of this is useless. We have to explain how we were able to see the first transmission of information. And I'm trying not to even open that topic of information. And even if you put all those ingredients together, how do you explain that they store and transmit and understand information? We're, keep, we're not even talking about this right now in this cell. And maybe maybe we'll have one more or not. We'll see, depending on the level of interest. We can have one more session to finish this topic. We'll talk about information. And we'll keep it very simple. But it's a, an argument besides everything we've said until now. We just need the number. We just need the number, yeah. There's no number for that one. <laughs> it's not a matter of number. You take it in a completely different place oh, if you understand that we're talking about understanding information. Can the parts of a cell or inanimate matter, how do you make them understand information so that they do something specific with it? Anyways, so he says the origin of life is the most difficult problem that faces evolutionary biology and arguably biology in general. Indeed, the problem is so hard and the current state of the art seems so frustrating that some researchers prefer to dismiss the entire issue as being outside the scientific domain altogether. 
if you understand the words, this is he's saying something really important and big here. On the grounds that unique events, so very important, so basically he's saying this would have happened only once. It could not have happened more. Unique events. The beginning of life would have been a unique event. So they say that they dismiss this question of the origin of life. They say this is not even science. Science can't say anything about it. Science tells you about patterns, things that happen. But this is not explained by patterns. This is not ex- there's nothing that could make this happen again, a second time. It's so rare, it's so unique, that it could have only happened once, so don't ask me how. Don't try to get an answer from science. Science is not made to answer these unique events. So, on the grounds that unique events are not conducive to scientific study. However, this position appears deeply unsatisfactory, especially because although life certainly evolved only once on this planet, and that's what he talked about in chapter 11, we have no idea just how unique or otherwise it is in our universe as a whole. So there is a possibility that this may have happened elsewhere in the universe, and maybe it's not that unique. If one does accept the origin of life as a scientific issue, then there seems to be no denying that it is a problem of overwhelming importance before which all other questions in biology are relatively mundane. It might seem natural to demand that before one starts to analyze the origin of a particular phenomenon, the phenomenon in question be explicitly defined. A number of definitions of life have been given in the course of history of science and philosophy. So now he's going to give us his definition of what life is. And I'm not I'm going to spare you all the details. I'm just going to read the little part that summarizes everything. He says, however, in the context of the discussion in the preceding chapters, it is surprisingly easy to make a decision on what kind of entity should be considered living. Any temporarily so something that exists in time, any temporarily stable replicator system is a life form. So anything that can self-generate, that can copy itself on its own, is considered life. Okay? This is important because we have, when someone says the origin of life, we have to agree on what are we looking for here. That's why we said, for instance, last, last time when we talked, we said viruses are not usually considered living beings. They don't, they don't, they might look at them to get clues, but we cannot rely on how a virus came to be to explain how a cell came to be, because they're fundamentally different. A virus can't do anything on its own. It needs a host to take over, and then it can, it lives. The moment you remove it from a host, it ceases to live. It waits until it's part of another host again, and then it comes back to life. So is it really living? Not really. It's kind of like, have alive and have not alive. So his definition is any temporarily stable replicator system is a life form. So he says in this chapter, we discuss the entire conundrum of the origin of replication and translation. So now, and I'm skipping of course, but now he's talking about the main, the main mechanisms that are required inside the cell today. At that time, there was no cell. But the main mechanisms, there's three or four of them, that have to be explained by his theory. So anyone who says, I can explain life, we have to say, so what is life to you? 
He is saying anything that can self-replicate. To self-replicate, you need replication and translation. Okay. Given the exclusive universal conservation of the translation machinery, this probably should be considered the core of the origin of life issue. So basically, translation becomes his main focus. He's saying everything is going to rest on this mechanism. And he's going to go, the origin of life is a problem that by its very nature cannot belong entirely in the domain of biology. Before there was life, even in its simplest imaginable embodiment, there must have been prebiotic chemistry. So there are chemical interactions taking place that are going to lead eventually to life, but they're not life yet, okay? And this is a whole field, prebiotic chemistry. Anyways, that has to be analyzed from the chemical, geochemical. So this is what's happening on Earth. It's chemical interactions, let's say, when they say, for instance, the thermal vents, the hydrothermal vents. So they go, they look like chimneys inside the ocean, and they're actually chimneys from under which there are volcanoes at the bottom of the ocean. Under there, there's volcanoes, and what's coming out is the heat. And they say this is the best place today. They say this, they're called hydrovents. This is a hydrothermal vents. This is the best place for life to have emerged, or one of the best. And so they're studying them. Quebec has some of the best ones in the world that are being studied right now. Anyways, analyze from chemical, geochemical, and geophysical perspectives. Finally, and not without trepidation, we touch upon, so this is his outline for the chapter, we touch upon general aspects of probability of unique events in the context of the modern theories and cosmology. So how he's going to say this discussion should allow us to at least develop some intuition with regards to the frequency of life in the cosmos. So how often can we expect life to have arisen in the cosmos? So now I'm fast-forwarding many, many pages. Another part, I think I'm going to skip this one. Page two, 360 now, he's explaining how, why the RNA. So he goes through all the major theories, and then he, he's trying to get us to see why he chooses the one that he chooses. So he basically sides with the popular theory today with the RNA world. So he explains what I just explained, which is, the central dogma, so this is the blind belief, right? That's a dogma. The central dogma of molecular biology states that in biological systems, information is transferred from DNA to protein through RNA intermediate. intermediate, intermediate. Obviously, when considering the origin of the first life forms, one faces a proverbial chicken and egg problem. What came first, DNA or protein, the gene or the product? In that form, the problem might be outright unsolvable due to the Darwin-Egan paradox to replicate and transcribe DNA, functionally active proteins are required. But production of these proteins requires accurate replication, transcription, and translation of nucleic acid. So that's what we explain, and so that's how they go to the RNA world. Okay, so RNA would have been the first thing. When he goes through all of this and states why he accepts the RNA world as being the best hypothesis, he then comes back and says, all these arguments in favor, notwithstanding, so it's not to take anything away from these arguments for RNA world, the RNA world hypothesis faces grave difficulties. And then he starts showing what's wrong with that, which I'm going to skip right now. Okay. 
Here, just a little passage on page 366. He says the structure of the code, the genetic code, I'm not going to explain anything, I'm just mentioning it, just to keep in mind. He says the structure of the code is clearly non-random. I thought that was very interesting. Anyways, so we go now to page... I'm almost there. He summarizes... This is a passage, it's called The Skeptical Summary of the Existing Models for the Evolution of Replication and Translation. So he goes through uh, all the big theories, and then he says, page 377, All things considered, my assessment of the current state of art in the study of the origins of replication and translation is rather somber, like very depressing. Okay? Notwithstanding relevant theoretical models and suggestive experimental results, we currently do not have a credible solution to these problems and do not even see with any clarity a path to such a solution. This is after he summarized all the big theories explaining the origin of life. He's saying not only do we have nothing, we have no real credible solution, we don't even have something that looks like a path that will lead to a solution. This is how little we know about how the origin of life started. This is from one of the biggest specialists in the world about this topic. So when someone comes and says, it's, you understand nothing, it's very simple. Of course you can get life if you just put the right ingredients together. Well, they know nothing. They are the ones who know nothing and they understand nothing. These are the biggest specialists in the world, and this is when they're being truthful, this is what they say. Granted, the ribosome field is young, and much progress can be reasonably expected to be achieved soon enough. So he always does this and comes back with optimism that hopefully one day soon, although in the previous sentence he says, a path to such a solution is not even, seems to exist right now. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to page 382, <clears throat> in which he says, Even considering environments that could facilitate these processes, such as networks of inorganic compartments at hydrothermal vents, these are the vents that I spoke about, multiplication of the probabilities for these steps could make the emergence of the first replicators staggeringly improbable. Okay, he's like, when we put everything together... And we look at the probability, the probability is so low, the chances are so low that it's staggeringly improbable. So most likely does not happen, improbable. This profound difficulty of the origin of life problem might appear effectively insurmountable, like something that you cannot even get beyond, compelling one to ask extremely general questions that go beyond the realm of biology. Okay, page 384. Here he's going to start. He's saying when we're stuck with all of this, everything we look at is problematic. How are we going to solve it? Just a quick hint, by the way. This guy became famous, and there's a, a number that I'm going to mention soon because you said it's all about the number, right? There's a, a number that I'm going to mention soon that, that he became famous for that number now. So anyone who wants to study in this field, I mentioned to you the first number by Douglas Axe, the one in 10 to the power of 164. 
That's a very important number in anything related to origin of life. I'm going to mention the most recent one. This guy is the most recent one. But it's what Axe studied was the probability of having a functional protein. This guy studied a little bit beyond that, which is he needs that protein to do something. So it's the transcription, it's the translation and that, okay? He became known for this. What's interesting is that, as I said, he has an entire chapter, chapter 12, where he talks about all of this, and I'm, gonna, I'm about to explain how he explains all of this. Because he's saying there's no solution. He's admitting that there's no solution. But he's going to find one, and I'm about to tell you. But the calculation for this is not in chapter 12. The book ends with two, appendix one, appendix two. It's at the very end of appendix two. So unless you look for it until the last page of the book before the index, you will not see the actual number, which was, I thought, very interesting. Because the appendices, they're very technical. There's a lot of calculations in them. Although if you go through it, you understand what he's talking about. He doesn't, he doesn't explain how he got to the numbers, but he says what he used. Okay, so anyways. Now, page 384 is where he starts talking about his solution. He just refuted every other theory. He's saying they're, they're too improbable. It's kind of like impossible to go there. So what do we need? Classic materialist, physicalist argument. You all have heard it many, many times. He calls it something different, and I'm not going to go into the technicalities of what he means because it's a well-known term and it has a very clear definition too. It's the many worlds in one, or basically the multiverse, or the infinity of universes. So the universe, let's call the universe everything that exists with all the possible you know, many universes within it, including ours. So he's saying if you give it enough time, an infinity of time, and you have an infinity of universes, then anything that can happen or will only happen 1 in 10 to the power of 164, as we said, is going to happen at some place, at some point, which is the cheapest argument in the book. And I'm keeping that to maybe later. One day we'll talk about this idea of the multiverse or the multiple universes, or multiple worlds, or many worlds in one, all those names are for... See what he has to do, what he has to create, just to make things make sense. And this is the part that is, you have to challenge when someone just tells you the idea, the hypothesis of having a god, a supernatural being, is not logical, is not objective, is not scientific, so you're telling me to explain your science, you have to create an infinity of universes for an infinity of time just to make your thing work because you have no clue how else to do it. So you have to say anything that can happen should happen or will happen. Okay, so you're telling me that there's a pink green elephant, you know, jumping around somewhere. And he's going to say no, well, of course, if anything can happen, it will happen. It's happening somewhere in one of the universes, anything is, if that, that's the cheapest argument in the book, especially if you say, and this is why they, all of them, they use different terminology, especially if you say there is no way to interact between one universe and another, between one world and another. So basically it means it's not a scientific theory. You have to create something just to make your thing work, but the reality is 
you will never be able to use science to prove what you're saying. Because these worlds do not connect in any way. There's nothing in science that allows you to say that there's another universe. Anyways, we'll talk about that another time. So the many worlds in one model makes a startling prediction that all macroscopic coarse-grain histories of events that are not forbidden by conservation laws of physics have been realized or will be realized somewhere in the infinite multiverse, and not just once, but an infinite number of times. See, life is not special. It's going to happen an infinite number of times now. For example, there are an infinite number of exact copies of the Earth, with everything that exists on it, although the probability that a given observable region of the universe contains one of these copies is vanishingly small. This picture appears extremely counterintuitive. Between two brackets and two quotes, he wrote crazy. So he's saying my idea seems crazy or counterintuitive, but it is a direct consequence of eternal inflation, the dominant model of the evolution of the multiverse in modern cosmology. And then he goes on explaining how all of this could make sense. Thus, spontaneous emergence of complex systems that would have to be considered virtually impossible in a finite universe becomes not only possible, but inevitable under a many worlds in one, uh, even though the prior probabilities of the vast majority of histories to occur in a given universe are vanishingly small. So even if the probability of having life emerge is extremely small, because you have an infinity of universes, now we, we can explain all of this. And then he adds other parts that I'm not going to go into. Let me just see. So let me finish with this. Page 391. He is going to summarize the chapter. So there's a couple of passages here that I think are very important. Please keep them in mind. One of them, page 391. This is a paragraph. The origin of life is one of the hardest problems in all of science, but it is also one of the most important. Origin of life research has evolved into a lively interdisciplinary field, but other scientists often view it with skepticism and even derision. Like they, they, laugh, they laugh at it. That's uh, this attitude is understandable and, in a sense, perhaps justified, given the dirty, rarely mentioned secret, which is what, despite many interesting results to its credit, when judged by the straightforward criterion of reaching or even approaching the ultimate goal, the origin of life field is a failure. We still do not have even a plausible coherent model, let alone a validated scenario for the emergence of life on Earth, which includes his own model, right? Certainly, this is due not to a lack of experimental and theoretical effort, but to the extraordinary intrinsic difficulty and complexity of the problem. A succession of exceedingly unlikely steps is essential for the origin of life, from the synthesis and accumulation of nucleotides to the origin of translation. Through the multiplication of probabilities, these make the final outcome seem almost like a miracle. Okay, so I don't know what else is needed here. Still, the difficulties remain formidable. 
So he, he comes back with a paragraph saying, although it's that bad, there is still hope. Okay? After that paragraph, he comes back. Still, the difficulties remain formidable. For all the effort, we do not currently have coherent and plausible models for the path from simple organic molecules to the first life forms. Most damningly, the powerful mechanisms of biological evolution were not available for all the stages preceding the emergence of replicator systems. And that's why I said, you cannot treat the problem of the origin of life as part of evolutionary biology. He's saying none of those things that you want to call into action once you have life that can help you once you have life to explain evolution, you can't go back to any of them. You can't resort to any of them. Given all these major difficulties, it appears prudent to seriously consider radical alternatives. So his prudent way, his cautious way, his conservative way, is to consider radical alternatives, which is what, which is what he proposed. Okay? This is a summary of everything he said. Radical alternatives for the origin of life, the many worlds in one version of the cosmological model of eternal inflation might suggest a way out of the origin of life conundrum. So that's his best answer. Anything that can happen will happen because it's infinite, and so on and so forth. The last paragraph. Given the enormous complexity and difficulty of the origin of life problem, and the unavailability of biological evolution mechanisms, selection and drift for any stage that antedates fairly elaborate replicator systems, I suggest that the possibility that life emerged through a combination of exceedingly unlikely events that the many world uh, in one theory renders inevitable, however rare, should not be dismissed. So he's basically begging scientists and thinkers, please don't dismiss my theory of the many world in one, because we have nothing else to rely on right now. This possibility is counterintuitive in the extreme, but we know only too well that intuition is a poor guide when temporal and spatial scales far, uh, far outside human experience are involved. So it's okay that it's completely counterintuitive. It looks like it makes absolutely no sense to go to a, towards a theory like that. But for really difficult problems like these, this is what we have to do. Furthermore, and now he's talking about his model, is no idle speculation. On the contrary, it is a readily falsifiable hypothesis. And the falsification, whether it comes in the form of a demonstration of the fa feasibility of the RNA world in which translation evolves, or the discovery of independent life in our universe will be a truly momentous achievement. Okay? Now, I'm going to skip to page. Now I was at page 392. Chapter 12 ended. I'm going to go towards the end, end of the book, page 435. Okay? He says the requirements, after all the explanations of the calculation, he says the requirements for the emergence of a primitive coupled replicator translator system, because that's what you need to have the first genes replicate itself, which is considered a candidate for the breakthrough stage in this paper, are much greater. At a minimum, spontaneous formation of the following is required. So two... RNAs, 
of a total size of at least 1,000 nucleotides, approximately 10 primitive adapters, at least one RNA encoding replicator. These are the three things we need and how big they are. So this is the minimal, minimal requirement for life, to something to be able to replicate itself. Okay? In other words, now he's going to say so, the number. So the number before has to happen twice before this can happen. Yeah, so he's saying two RNAs with a total size of 1,000 nucleotides. Okay, that's what that's the minimum you need. Approximate that number, put it aside that number because that's not his. Now he's going to give us his number, okay. which I'm telling you guys today, this is the most accurate number, not the other one. The other one is the most popular, but today this is a lot more accurate. At least one RNA encoding a replicase, about 500 nucleotides, low bound required under the notation used here, resulting in, so he has, it's written E, must be, okay, so it's smaller than, so this is a probability, 1 in 10 to the power of 1018. Okay, so we were, we said that the number 1 in 10 to the power of 164 164. Look at that mark, so like 10 times. Yeah, it's a lot more than 10 times. We just went from 164 to 1018 as an exponent. This is, <laughs> it's a gigantic. That has jump. to happen after the one before. Of course. Because the protein comes before the, the information. Yeah, so this, now this is including everything. So this is for it to be able to replicate itself. The other one is not replicating itself. It's just all the ingredients come together into one protein. This one is more than just a protein. That's why I said we're going to take it to the next level. We want to be able to talk about life, right? Mm -hmm. So I told you guys I wanted to give you this number because this number is more concrete, more real. Okay, so I'm going to just finish this. In other words, even in this toy model that assumes a deliberately inflated rate of RNA production proportion, or production, the probability that a coupled translation replicator, replication emerges by chance in a single O region, so basically in a single region of the observable universe, is 1 in 10 to the power of 1018. Obviously, this version of the breakthrough stage can be considered only in the context of a universe with an infinite or, at the very least, extremely vast number of observable regions because it's kind of impossible to imagine this number. I wanted to go back to the book by Stephen Meyer to finish this. So here Stephen Meyer was telling us how we got to the number 1 in 10 to the 164. And once he explains that, he says, but the problem is worse. It doesn't stop at the 10. Now we know it's worse. Mm -hmm. the, that other guy showed us. This guy is going to jump into something even more complex now. The problem is even worse than that for at least two reasons. First, Axe's experiments calculated the odds of finding a relatively short protein by chance alone. More typical proteins have what? Have hundreds of amino acids. What he calculated was 150. So it's a smaller protein. Okay, more typical proteins have hundreds of amino acids and in many cases their function requires close association with other protein chains. So for them to work, they need another protein to be there. So what are the chances? 
For example, the typical RNA polymerase, the large molecular machine that cell uh, that the cell uses to copy genetic information during transcription has over 3,000 functionally specified amino acids. The probability of producing such a protein and many other necessary proteins by chance would be far smaller than the odds of producing a 150 amino acid protein. Okay, so that's one, one problem. Another problem. Second, as discussed, a minimally complex cell would require many more proteins than just one. Taking this into account only causes the, the improbability of generating the necessary proteins by chance or the genetic information to, pre, to produce them to balloon beyond comprehension. So basically, you may be able to get one protein. Maybe. You may get two. You may get three. But how do you get thousands to make the cell work? How do you get from there to a full cell? In 1983, distinguished British cosmologist Sir Fred Hoyle calculated the odds of producing the proteins necessary to serve a simple one-celled organism by chance at 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. <laughs> now he says he adds well, this, is, this was a far time ago right this was 1983 at that time scientists could have questioned his figure scientists knew how long proteins were and roughly how many protein types there were in simple cells but since the amount of functionally specified information in each protein had not yet been measured probability calculation, calculations like Hoyle's required some guesswork Okay, so maybe, maybe he was off. Okay, 1983. Axe's experimental findings suggest that Hoyle's guesses were pretty good. If we assume that a minimally complex cell, at least 250 proteins of an, on average, 150 amino acids, and that the probability of producing just one such protein is 1 in 10 to the power of 164, if we keep that calculation in mind, as calculated above, then the probability of producing all the necessary proteins needed to service a minimally complex cell multiplied by 250 becomes 1 to the power of 10 to 41,000. This kind of number allows a great amount of quibbling about the accuracy of various estimates without altering the conclusion. The probability of producing the proteins necessary to build a minimally complex cell or the genetic information necessary to produce those proteins by chance is unimaginably small. Conclusion, Axe's work confirmed the intuitions of an older generation, origin of life researchers and other scientists. And he mentions a number of them. All of these have made calculations similar to those to show how low the probability is. Morowitz, Hoyle, Wickramasinghe, Karen Smith, Prigojin, Yoki, Zadouv, Robert Shapiro, Francis Crick, who were deeply skeptical about the chance hypothesis. Many of these scientists had performed their own calculations in which they assumed extremely favorable prebiotic conditions, more time than was actually available on the early Earth, 
and maximally fast reactions between rates, uh, reaction rates between the chemical constituents of proteins, DNA, and RNA. So he's saying that in their calculations, they had given more time than there actually was on Earth at that time. And they had made the reaction times much smaller than they really are. And still, the results that they got made them extremely skeptical about this idea that all of this could have come together by chance. Invariably, such calculations have fueled greater skepticism about the chance hypothesis. So they're very skeptical about the chance hypothesis, especially since origin of life researchers also recognize that DNA and proteins poses functionally, uh, possess, sorry, functionally specified rather than uh, just random information. So the information aspect, as we said, I'm not even talking about it right now. But the more you get into it, the more complex all of this is going to become. It takes it into a completely different world. Because all of this is based on the idea that they call it self-organizing. And I didn't really talk about this. How is all of this working? They say it just self-organizes. It organizes itself into this. And that's it. You can't ask more questions. It just comes in a certain way. Okay, yeah, this inanimate matter, you can maybe say that about a living animal, but to say like inanimate matter, atoms on their own, like a table or a chair, would you, could you accept that it self-organizes itself into a chair or a table? No. But they're saying about inanimate matter that it self-organizes in this way. Because I didn't get into the details of, a lot of this is based on, like, there's an architecture to life. If you get into the, the, the molecules that make the DNA, or the proteins inside a cell, the thousands of them that you need, they are folded in a certain way. There's an angle, there's a, a twist or a shape to them that is very, very precise. You mess with that, that protein doesn't work anymore. It doesn't click in place in the same way. Where is that coming from? If we go into the idea, for instance, of how, how they, the cell creates, what, what it does, for instance, if you look at the genetic code, the cell, to, for any function to, to do what it does, what it needs to do is to, let's say, put a protein together that is going to be used for something. Okay? How does it do that? A part is going to go on the genetic code and unzip it. It really looks like it's unzipping it in a specific location. How does it know that that's that location for that protein? It unzips it just enough and when it unzips it, there are it's like a, a, a ladder that you've split in two and the ending of the steps have a certain shape. So the RNA is going to come and that shape is going to become its template. It's going to replicate that, take an image of that, make it a template, and leave. The part that was open closes back as if nothing happened. The RNA travels to where the rest of the cell world is living with all of these bums, let's call them, all of these floating things. Okay? And it doesn't go just there randomly. There's a ribosome. 
that connects to it. And there, there's a big one and a small one, and they have a very specific role and shape. Let's not go into the details. It goes there, and it does something, and then only the parts from all the thousands of things that are floating, only the parts it needs to create that protein are called, and they come, and then it starts putting them together in that exact way it needs to create that protein. And then it does what it's supposed to do with that protein. That's one tiny function, and this is happening thousands of times. How is this happening? If you don't understand that there's an information here, none of this makes sense. Like there's a specific purpose for that protein. There, it, and it goes beyond one step. It's like, it's as though it's a, imagine a process that has more than one step. Like it has 40 steps. You could explain something that has one step because it's a reaction. You hit me, my leg moves. That's a one, one step. But what makes it do a domino effect of 40 or 50 or 100 operations that all converge back to creating that protein? And that's one protein. Anyways, so as we said, all of this put together, invariably such calculations have fueled greater skepticism, and that's the idea of information. Now let's go back to what were we saying. So allow me to just finish with these two quick thoughts, two quick uh, quotes. So one of them is from Haldane. Why is Haldane important? Haldane is basically one of the guys after, as we said, there's Alexander Oparin is one of the guys who worked on the idea of the primordial or primeval soup. And the other one was Haldane. Okay, so this gives us an idea of who he was. Let's read a quote from him. He writes in 1965, if the minimal organism, in other words, the cell, if the minimal organism involves not only the code for its one or more proteins, but also 20 types of soluble RNA, one for each amino acid, and the equivalent of ribosomal RNA, our descendants, okay, so future generations, our descendants may be able to make one. But we must give up the idea that such an organism could have been produced in the past. He's saying it's impossible that the cell could have been produced in the past, except by a similar pre-existing organism, or by an agent, natural or supernatural, at least as intelligent as ourselves, and with a good deal more knowledge. This is Haldane, the guy who was working on the primordial or primeval soup. Yeah? Okay, another one. Francis Crick. Crick is one of the two guys who worked and discovered the double helix, that the DNA is made of this ladder that's spinning. Mm. Francis Crick is one of the two guys, and he won the Nobel Prize. Okay, he writes, An honest man, armed with the knowledge, all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment 
to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have to have been satisfied to get it going. And this he wrote in Life Itself. It's a book called Life Itself, 1981. What's interesting about Crick, Francis Crick, is that the more he looked, the more he got to this conclusion that it's like a miracle. It's not like someone like me who reads a little book about this. These people have spent their entire lives on this. They know what they're talking about. They're seeing how complex it is. So he is one of the believers in panspermia. If you remember, we said one of the theories, it's called the theory of the origin of life, is that the origin of life did not start on earth. So he is one of the people who made panspermia famous because it's Francis Crick. And if you tell him, what do you believe in? He's like, well, it, we can't really explain how it got here on earth. It's too difficult, so it must have come from outside of Earth. Panspermia has two versions. There's panspermia general, and there's another one that they call directed panspermia. Directed panspermia basically means an intelligent life sent life on Earth. So like aliens or someone decided intentionally to send life on Earth which is different than there is life everywhere, and it just got here by chance on a meteorite or a, you know, an asteroid that just clashed on, on Earth, and that's how it got here. Directed panspermia is the next level, right? Why are these considered respectable scientific theories? Because if you said that, usually people would laugh you off, right? You say this is... The reason is there is no other explanation today. So either you say, I don't know, I have no answer. Either you have to say, well, you know, it must have happened because we're here today. And the only option that I will allow is that it happens. In this random chance event that it happens, it must have happened. So it happened. Okay? Or you have an infinity of universes, many world hypotheses. Or it was sent from the outside. And sometimes, as we said last time, that's not enough because you're still not saying how it started. You're just saying how it got on Earth. Anyways. So that's one theory. And I here I have a Bernal. Bernal was... He was a pioneer of x-rays. Okay, using x-rays, especially in molecular biology. Very big scientist. He wrote about panspermia. He, he was really frustrated with people who talk about panspermia as though it's a scientific theory. He wrote this approach, so thinking that life, thinking that it's okay to just explain life as though something that got on our planet at some point, this approach is equivalent in the last resort to asserting the operation of metaphysical spiritual entities. So basically he's saying, we're going back to square one and saying it's, it's non-scientific explanations if you have to go towards panspermia. It turns on the argument of creation by design by a creator or demiurge, which is a god. Demiurge is a god. Okay? So he's basically going back to the same idea. He's saying that if we allow that to be a scientific theory, then that's it, we've messed up science. That we're, we cannot use that as one of the theories to explain the origin of life. 
therefore unscientific. So as we said today, to explain life, there's three approaches. All the theories that have to do with abiogenesis, so the beginning of life from non-life, the beginning of, anim of animated or animate matter from inanimate matter, from dead matter. Okay? That's all the theories we talked about. Or, we say it just came from outer space. It's two, it's panspermia. Three, and I haven't really talked about this, but I hope you guys keep it in mind. I'm mentioning it a lot. I keep mentioning it because I'm going to bring it all together eventually, much later. Which is the idea, going back to the idea of the life force. The life force being something now, because if every time I look at something I say, I have no clue how to explain it, how to make the jump from non-living to living, right? Because the issue is, it's as though these are two separate entities. The problem is that if you're a materialist, you have to explain everything through matter, and there's a portion here that you can't explain with matter, which is the life part. Right? So what's the only other option? So you have, right now, if you say you look at the world, and you only have two types of entities. You have one entity... One entity that doesn't have anything special. And the second one has something special called life. The problem is that you are a reductionist. You are a physicalist. You are a materialist. You say the only thing that exists is matter. So you have to get rid of the life part and make it seem as though it's like the rest. Right? So this is what they tried to do with the abiogenesis. Those are the people who go that route. And the second group, they say, we have no clue, it came from outside and leave us alone. Okay, so what's left? What's left the, is the group that says, the other way to solve it is to say that there is life in everything. Or you could say that there is no life in anything. Well, that's materialist. That's what they're doing. The materialist said, there is no life in it. There's nothing special about it. You think you're life, you're not life. You're just chemistry and physics. There's nothing beyond that. There is no biology. The biology part is really nothing. It's, it comes down to physics and chemistry. Working whatever it does. It's just chemical reactions. The other way to explain it is to say it's all biology. You think it's inanimate. You think it's dead matter. You think it's just atoms. This is alive. And so there's nothing special. Or it's all special, basically. So it's not because you're alive that you're different from the atoms. The atoms are alive too, and they have the life force. And they have the elan vital, the vital spark that was required to start life. It didn't start life. Everything has life in it already. Why do they go there? Because there's no other way to explain. You're stuck, right? That's where I'm trying to show you how they are. You either go here or here. If you refuse to have an external entity saying that this is going now, I'm going to make it different. I'm going to put life in it. Well, obviously, if you, you don't allow yourself to have that as an option, 
then what are your alternatives? You say everything is dead or everything has life. And explain it one way or another. And of course, both sides are laughing the other off, saying doesn't make any sense. Okay, inshallah we'll talk about that more. We'll get into that later. Just wanted to see if... Uh... Don't they see how they're special? Because how they, they know, they try to know all this. So like, there is no entity that knows all this. As in like, the protons and all that. All humans have the, like, have, know this, which... Which I know, but there is, of course, Allah who knows more. But like, don't they see how we're different from any other species? Species, like, like so we're not. It's not we didn't just pop up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you are a materialist, you have to explain that. So there have been some explanations on how we may or may not be different. But really, the only mechanism that they have is to explain it through evolution. To say to, to say we were like we took a wrong turn. And that's what made us isn't different that, from the rest of the animal doesn't kingdom. Doesn't that mean sooner or later, like, there has to be another smart thing? Like, we'll have to see a dog that speaks? And that's why they put all their eggs in that one basket, which is, if there is, what, intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. As soon as they discover that, some people will say, see, it proves that there is no God. It means that it is possible... It's not that unique. We were not the only ones created by exception. This is just how it is. The universe generates life on its own. If you look long enough, you're going to find a whole lot of it. Everywhere. And we're going to talk about that, inshallah. That's the, the third topic. Beginning of, beginning of the universe. Beginning of life. And inshallah, we wanted to keep the last one, which has to do with what it means to be human. Or consciousness, or the soul, all of that together. That's our last one. And maybe here a quick thing. So I'm saying this is the third and last option that you say everything has life in it. Personally, I argue that this point of view, this theory, this belief is really making a strong comeback. If you look at the last little while, there is a huge movement towards this. And you see it loud and clear in the medical field, where people talk about something that in scientific terms they call bioenergetics. Okay, so this is the idea that the reason why people get sick is because the energies in their bodies are not balanced. So they go to traditional medicine and they go to that. Where is this coming from? It's coming from the idea, this is a foundation the foundation of it is the belief that everything has a life force in it, an energy in it. It's the same energy. You and the planet and the water and the tree and the animal and the galaxy, everything has that kind of energy in it. It's the same, it's one. And it's a matter of being at peace, having the right vibration, it's all holistic. Why? This is the foundation of it. So this is making a big comeback right now. In a lot of fields, including, you can see it loud and clear in well-being, medicine, all of that. Holistic medicine or these things. Okay? Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad.